Welcome and happy Friday. It's August 19th, 2016, and this is Travelog, the podcast of Kanye Nast Traveler. I am Brad Rickman. I'm back after a two-week hiatus, jaunting around the desert southwest. Uh, we can talk about that some other time, or not at all, if we want to. I'm here with Mark Elwood, who's a contributing editor and a producer of the podcast these days, Lilith Marcus, who's a contributing digital editor for us and a writer, and Andrew Sessa, who's a contributing editor and a writer for us as well. And Andrew's coming to us by Skype, so if there's a little bit of a sort of tunnel voice going on there, that's the reason why. The topic of the week is cruising, and the title of the podcast, or the presumptive title of the podcast is, there's a cruise out there for you even if you hate cruises. I'm going to confess, as I've done many, many times before, that I have never been on a cruise. And so I'm going to ask you good people to educate me. I'm the naive cruiser. I am intrigued by the concept. I would like to go on a cruise. I love the idea of being. I just got back from traveling in an Airstream trailer, and there was a lot uh, intriguing about that and um, a lot of interesting things about that. So I'm intrigued by the notion of a cruise, but I have no idea how to enter this, what to look for, how to find the right cruise for me, what my options are, and then what the sort of state of the cruising industry is generally. So help me get started. What's a good place to start? I would say I think the most important thing when you're getting ready to go on a cruise is to check some of your preconceptions because I think the cruise industry became very famous in the 80s and was therefore pictured as a weird combination of sort of Times Square and the love boat, just thousands of people and really cheesy. And I think if you pick the right cruise, you can have probably your most memorable vacation ever. But you just need to check that assumption that every cruise is a one size fits all, every cruise is enormous, every cruise is chaotic, and take a step back. That's what I would. I would also say that the way that you cruise is the way that you travel. So whatever you're interested in from a travel perspective, think about how you can execute that on a cruise. So if you're into visiting cities more than the country, maybe a river cruise is the option for you. Uh, for my own first cruise, which I just went on this May, one thing that really appealed to me was the idea of getting to explore one destination a little more in depth. You know, I didn't want to hit a different place every single day and feel like I was just getting kind of a bite of each one. So I ended up going on the inaugural Fathom Adonia cruise from the U.S. to Cuba. We went to three different from ports in Cuba, sailed around the island, and it was a week altogether. And it was such a great first cruise experience. I felt like I got to see a new place, but I got to see it from several perspectives, learn a lot. And it was only a week, so it wasn't a huge commitment, and I could see if I liked it. And I ended up having a great experience. For you, was that about the boat or was that about going to Cuba? What was a that A little about? bit of both. It was a small ship, which I think helped a lot. Sort of what Mark was talking about. I think a lot of people assume that all cruises are like these huge free-for-all buffets with like a million people everywhere. Yeah, that is my assumption. So correct my assumption. What does a small cruise mean? Yeah, so the one that I went on could only fit 700 people, which still is a lot, but for the cruise world, it's on the smaller side. And it meant that I actually got to know more people. I was seeing the same couple of people every day, but it didn't constantly feel crowded. Like I could get places to myself. There were days where I went out on the sun deck and there was maybe one other person out there. So for somebody who usually travels solo and doesn't do well in crowds, it was actually fine for me. The other thing I would also add, I think that what we are obsessed with is the destinations. But look for a cruise that has a couple of days at sea. Because the sea days are when you're transiting between some far-flung ports. 
But what those are, are a chance to enjoy the boat. And I love that day of no schedule. You wake up and you think, I don't know what I'm going to do today, which is very unusual in our lives. So rather than just being driven by the ports, make sure there are a couple of sea days because you probably will find they'll end up being some of your favorite memories. I was just going to add that I think there's a question of is cruising, is the cruise ship a means to an end or is it the end in and of itself? And I think for a lot of people who are like the quote unquote typical cruisers who are still living in that 1980s fantasy of the love boat and Times Square that Mark was talking about, cruising and the ship is the end. That's why you're going. But for those, a lot of the rest of us, especially people who are new to cruising, it's a means to an end. It's a way to get somewhere It's a, or a way to get to a lot of somewheres pretty easily and only unpacking once, which people make fun of, but it really is an incredibly glorious and easy way to travel. And I think new cruisers, as I was saying, it is the means to an end. And so it's a matter of thinking, what is the end you want? Is it the trip to Cuba? Is it seeing wildlife? Is it adventure in the South Pole? Places that you really couldn't get to otherwise without being on a ship or places you couldn't get to easily or comfortably without being on a ship. Are there different lines that specialize in either sort of these different types of on-ship experiences like small ships versus large ships? And also, I guess maybe in a different part of the, the discussion, we could talk about whether they specialize in different parts of the world or different destinations. So if I'm coming in as a consumer, what should I be looking for? Should I be looking at specific lines? I think, again, it's that question a bit of, you know, why are you going? To get back to that first part of your question, the lines can get as specific as you want them to be, you know? So there's Aqua Expeditions, for example, which has a boat in the flooded rainforest in Peru, excuse me, a ship, and then a ship on the Mekong River as well. And that's all they do. And they're about 32 people in 16 cabins, super luxurious, and they're only in those two places. But then there's a company like Uncruise, say, that travels to many, many more locations, it's a little bit smaller than the Fathom Ship to Cuba, but they specialize in really sort of hands-on activities and having lots of guides. So half the ship, say, could go out in kayaks in the Caribbean, as opposed to another ship that might just have a few. In terms of this notion of small ships versus large ships, what are we talking about in terms of actual numbers? I mean, I'm familiar, as many people are, with whenever you go to a big city like New York or the big cities in Europe, you know, uh, Venice, you will see these giant sort of vessels docked. You know, Barcelona has them as well. You will see these enormous vessels docked. I don't even know how many people there are on those, but to me, this must be large ship. So I was in, I was in the Mediterranean last summer on a cruise, and I think what sums it up for me is ports of call were Greece and Turkey. When we arrived in Santorini, the lagoon outside Santorini had six floating cities in it one morning. These were 4,000-person ships from Germany, Italy, English-speaking countries, astonishingly huge. We were on a Windstar ship with 200 people. Mm. The next port of call we had was Mykonos, which those ships cannot get to. Right. And it's too windy for them. So that 200-person ship, that was the big difference. Santorini versus Mykonos. So one day, we are walking around an island where you're essentially running into lots and lots of other cruise ship passengers looking at the same things, almost like a factory on Santorini in peak season. In Mykonos, we dock, 
and you don't realize there's anyone else there. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned Santorini. They actually, the local government has announced that they're going to limit the number of cruise ships who can come in. Last year, 636 cruise ships brought a total of 800,000 people to Santorini. And there's a growing trend, not just in Greece, but lots of other places around the world of it's not just a matter of places being crowded or that there are going to be long lines and you're going to have to wait for everything. It is an environmental issue. So, for example, if you want to take a cruise in Alaska, most of the islands, if you have a huge ship, won't let you within, say, two or three miles of the land. So for the people who are obsessed with seeing wildlife, want to get really close, want to watch a glacier calve, want to look for whales, they have to take a smaller ship or they're just not going to be able to access the places they want to go to. And I think that's going to be a growing trend. The cruise industry is so big and yet a lot of destinations are pushing back and saying we're not going to allow all of these ships to come here. So now what are the differences in the on-ship experience between the sort of large ship cruising and the smaller ship cruising? Well, one of them is customization. If there are fewer people, it's a lot easier to say, for example, oh, I'm really interested in learning more about this particular topic. Do you have someone on board who can talk to me about it? And there's probably a naturalist on board who, because there aren't as many of you, would be more than happy to come and talk to you about one really specific thing that you're interested in. Or you might have more options in terms of excursions and how to schedule them. And the big ships are 24-7. So you're basically trading off exclusivity for convenience. Mm. So if you go on one of the bigger ships, the celebrities, the carnivals of this world, you will have everything you want at your fingertips. You'll have family entertainment and a crash and a buffet open 24 hours, anything you want to do. If you go on a smaller ship like a Windstar, it is incredibly exclusive and you can get to new destinations. One thing that really struck me was I went to get dinner one night at 9.15 and there was no way of getting dinner except a couple of options in my room because dinner was finished. Mm. Because I'm on a smaller ship and that restaurant has to be turned around ready for breakfast. It's quite similar to, you know, a mega hotel in Las Vegas versus a boutique hotel in Semigal de Allende, right? People compare cruise ships to Vegas hotels all the time, but I don't think they think about the boutique hotels, but there really is both sides. And what you can expect of the mega hotel, you can expect of the mega cruise ship and from the boutique hotel, the smaller ship. Um, I think a footnote to all of this, though, is this trend that we included in our August issue of new ships within a ship's concepts, which also brings us back to Vegas, which has that as well. So certain lines now, including Norwegian, Celebrity, and MSC, all have basically super upmarket boutique hotel concepts within these larger 3,000, 4,000 person ships. And they have special key card access, their own spas, their own pools, different and presumably better rooms with balconies. Really? So it's like a whole part of the ship has been designated a different experience? Exactly. A different experience, a different level. It's a little, it's, it's quite a uh, velvet rope, but it seems to be working well for people and it's a direction bigger companies are going. But don't you, the, the cha- and the challenge I have with all of that, I love the idea of that. I think it's a great to give people a two-in-one option. But to me, the appeal of the smaller ships is where they can go. versus their exclusivity of service. So if you're in a chic bolt hole in a giant ship, you're not getting to go to any unusual ports of call because the ship is too big to get in there. Absolutely. And we did an online story about one of those destinations. What's great about cruises is that often they can get to places more cheaply and more conveniently than you could by air. One destination that I've always been interested in is Montserrat, the island which is near Guadeloupe. And for a long time, Guadeloupe was also on my list, and they finally had a flight that was cheap enough that I could go there and not have to connect in Paris. Montserrat 
is now super accessible for cruise ships in a way that it wasn't before. If there's not an airport, if there's one flight a week and it's crazy expensive, or frankly, if you're afraid to fly and you don't want to be in a six-seater and fly into a really tiny airport, the cruise is a great option and it'll get you to the place you want to go. You mentioned Windstar. What are some other sort of smaller cruise lines that people should look for? You look at Silver Seas, you look at Seabourn, you look at the Paul Gauguin in Tahiti. Those are all, look for those names. Those are reliable, small, high-end. I think they're a great way of starting because I think often people who are nervous about cruising are probably a little snobby about it. Mm. And I think they want reassurance that it's not, the food's not going to be terrible and it's not going to be deluged. So if you're coming in that way, look for those Seabourns, the Windstars, the Paul Gauguin, the Silver Seas. Those are going to be places that you won't feel completely out of your element. What do you guys think? What yeah, someone gave me the really good advice when I was thinking about going on my first cruise that if you're not familiar with a specific line or you don't know who's the best in a certain destination, just take a look at their pricing. And if it's $200 to go on this cruise and then everything else on the ship is a bunch of add-ons, that might not be the right choice for you if you don't want to have to pay for every single meal individually or have to. The all-inclusive element of cruising is really comforting for me. I found it a lot easier and it meant that I didn't have to do as much planning. So even though some of them were cheaper, in the long run, they were way more expensive. And when you're booking, you should also look for onboard. The two things I would say when you're booking, look for all-inclusive, because if you do not book an all-inclusive, you will find yourself constantly, I wouldn't say harassed, but you will be reminded at every juncture by onboard staff what you could upsell to. And personally, I would rather not have to, like a bazaar in the Middle East, haggle about things. So you want to go on and I'd say buy as much as you can up front and also look for onboard credit. One of the big things that cruise lines do to incentivize you to book with them is not reduce their prices, though they do do that sometimes. They will offer quid pro quo. So if you're spending $2,000 on your cruise, they may give you $500 onboard credit, which you can use towards your unlimited beverage package or spa treatments. So ask for that. When you're booking a cruise, do not be afraid to ask and say, sure, I'm ready to do it. I want to book it right now. What kind of onboard credit can you offer me? Because they have the ability to really soften your onboard experience that way. Andrew? Yeah, and those credits go sometimes as far as credits for air as well, which I don't think we've touched on, especially at the higher end. Regent has just launched their new ship, the Seven Seas Explorer, and for the first sailings, they're actually offering business class fare as part of the... Oh, uh, wow, that's great. I don't know how that how far that will go, but and I think that, that continues for promotions of newness, promotions of certain geography, new ships. It seems to me that cruising has changed in the last five or 10 years. What are some of the most important changes that you guys are seeing in the industry in the last five, 10 years? I think the most noticeable change, which is actually returned to something long ago, is cruising being a means to an end instead of the end in and of itself. And it's about getting people to places they couldn't otherwise get. And that means a lot more adventure on board and off. And I say it's a throwback because, you know, the cruising industry originated as a way to cross oceans and get people places. And so if you look at the growth in destinations like the North and South Pole, the Northwest Passage, the Columbia River Valley and the Pacific Northwest, people being out in kayaks, people fishing, people being in Zodiacs to look at wildlife, people scuba diving from these ships. I think that's what we're seeing more than anything else. And I think that's 
incredibly smart for the industry and incredibly attractive to travelers because otherwise, you know, it's a graying, it's a graying populace that's interested in cruising the sort of old fashioned Vegas mega ship sort of way. And if you want something new, you need to get millennials who are interested in active travel and want to do something different and unique and cool and want to do it the best way possible. The thing I would also say, I think Andrew's 100% right, one of the loveliest things that's happened in the last 10 years, especially with the newer ships, is solo travelers are no longer penalized. Norwegian, for example, took rooms which are an area on the interior of one of its ships that was originally earmarked, I think, as a nightclub, and then there was a bit of financial toing and froing, and they decided to try and turn it into revenue-generating space. Those interior rooms, yes, they do not have windows, but those interior rooms are called the studio rooms, and they are single-person-only rooms, where you do not pay a supplement to be on your own. The upside of that, many things. Maybe you want to travel solo. Maybe you like traveling solo. Maybe your family is an odd number. Maybe you have teenage children who don't want to share a room with each other. You suddenly have a much greater flexibility in numbers. And solo supplements used to be exorbitant. You essentially paid for the whole room. And now the cruise industry is really being resourceful and, and quite clever about how it allows solo travelers, which I think is a, I think that's a huge leap forward. And do you think that's driven by the same thing Andrew's talking about where there are younger travelers who are frequently traveling solo um, or in odd numbers of groups? I, I, think, it's, I think it's very much driven by that. The, the, the Norwegian studio concept has a sort of coffee bar hangout where you are expressly expected to kind of meet the other single travelers so that you can chill and kind of connect. Sure, it does feel a little bit forced, but well done for doing it. And I think that it does recognize that if you're a solo traveler, I think especially if you're a female solo traveler and you want to go adventuring, a cruise is a slightly more reassuring, safe way of overnighting safely, but exploring crazy places. And again, if you're that single traveler, you don't want to be penalized for not being with someone. And I think the cruise industry has been very welcoming to that. And we shouldn't forget about the food, which has increased mightily from the all-you-can-eat buffet over the last probably 10 years, but only keeps getting better, largely through partnerships with major name brand chefs. So you've got Alain Ducasse, who is going to be consulting on the new ships that Panant is launching. Thomas Keller just launched restaurants on Seabourn. The Culinary Institute of America has programming on Regent ships and also on Oceana to do culinary classes with actual master chef teachers from the Culinary Institute of America in upstate New York. And that's sort of, you know, if there are cliches we think of with cruises, it's the all-you-can-eat buffet and shuffleboard. And the fact that both activities and food are not like that anymore, I think, means a lot. I'll ask the question that we would ask of, of hotels or even uh, airplanes these days. What's the Wi-Fi like? Getting better. Hopeful. I think the way I think the way it's very important. I was on my Windstar ship. The Wi-Fi was terrific, but I was also in the Mediterranean, so therefore I would expect it to be slightly better because we're within distance of land quite easily. I think you should be aware. You should set an out of office that says I may not be as reachable as I'd like to be, and you should anticipate that on a cruise it will not be seamless. 
it's not quite there yet. They're, get, they're getting close. I mean, don't you think like, they're getting close, but... Yeah, I think it's better, absolutely. And I think also the packaging prices are getting a little bit more reasonable. There are a lot more options for you don't have to pay for every single hour anymore, and you, you're not tied to using the ship computers in the library. So that helps a lot. It was pretty funny on my own, on the Cuba cruise that I was on, you could kind of predict the moment that we were back in U.S. territory on the water because everyone was holding their phones and waiting for them to connect at the exact same time. And you could just hear all these beeps going off across the ship. And and relieved sighs. Yeah, but, you know, on the other hand, during the ship, we had intermittent internet. I thought it was fine, but it really was. I think that's part of the journey or destination question. It was kind of nice, honestly. Like, I don't need to be on Facebook as much as I am, and it got me to take a break and decompress a little. I will say one of the most memorable cruises I've ever taken, which caught me off guard, actually, was to take Cunard from London to New York. That has zero ports of call. Zero. Mm -hmm. It is merely sailing the Atlantic. So I got six days to do nothing. And it was slightly uncomfortable at the first and then amazing. What I would tell you is Cunard does run, Cunard is the best transatlantic, obviously. I'm not just British and snobby. Uh, Cunard is, not all all the time. Cunard is is the best operator for that route. But what I would tell you, the, the best tip is, if you sail from New York to London, you lose an hour in bed every night because every night they adjust the ship's onboard <laughs> clock. If you sail from London to New York, you gain an hour in bed every night. <laughs> so fly to London and <laughs> so sail back. So always fly to London and sail back. <laughs> Never sail to London and fly back. And flights to London are cheap these days. Right, so now it's the perfect this time. This is a great time to Nice go. segue. Just following up on the, on the transatlantic, what's the best time of year to do that? I would do it any time but the winter. Cunard, poor Cunard was very unfortunate when it launched when it launched the Gumeri, that the inaugural trip, which was, I think it was in the fall or the early spring, it was on an iffy time, was extraordinarily bumpy and most people spent some time in the infirmary either from hitting something or from <laughs> vomiting. So all the VIPs they had and the journalists reported varying levels of criticism about how rough it was. The transatlantic can be rough in the winter. In the summer, it'll be glorious, but I would take the spring or the fall as well. You, yeah. You're gonna be, you're gonna be fine. Yeah. I'm wondering, by way of again being the naive consumer here, if I were to take a cruise in the Caribbean, what would you guys recommend? That is somewhere that you're looking for multiple ports of call. Mm-hmm. In the Caribbean, you're not looking to stay on the ship as much. You really are trying to ricochet between the islands. I'm very sad that a concept that I road tested about 10 years ago called Easy Cruise went away because that, which is an offshoot of EasyJet, the European airline, merely shuttled between the islands and you slept and woke up in Martinique. You slept and woke up in Bequay. I would look, if I'm going to the Caribbean, I'd pick one island you can't not see, that dream place you've always wanted to go, and back form from there. The ships will always start somewhere that has really good airlift, probably Miami or Fort Lauderdale. So that's going to be much of a muchness. But when you're looking at itineraries, find one island you love and then see what else you can squeeze in. And keep in mind also that a lot of cruise ship companies own islands. Uh, so What? Yeah, so several cruise ship companies maybe own a Bahamian island or have exclusive access to a less visited island. So there are days on some cruise ships where they're like, we're taking you to this island and you haven't heard of it before. And you realize that it's because the only person who has the ability to access it is the cruise line. 
Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it depends what you want. Um, if it's the kind of thing where you just want to relax on the beach during the day and get in the water and hang out, it's really nice because you know that it won't be crowded because there's no one else there. Yeah. Uh, but if you're looking for taking in the local culture or the nightlife, then I'd skip it. Yeah. I would also say that the Caribbean tends to be the provenance of the slightly large, more commercial ships. Mm -hmm. It is harder to get a Caribbean sailing with a Ponant or one of the really, really high-end ships. They do not tend to make that their their main area because there's so much competition there already. So if you're going to the Caribbean, the, I think the smallest ship you're going to find is sort of the 500, 700 rather than the 200, 100. So adjust accordingly. It's much more cost effective. Yeah. What about the Mediterranean? Um, I was just in the Mediterranean on a cruise ship, which was the brand new uh, Silver Seven Seas Explorer, excuse me, from Regent, uh, which is 750 people and will not be going to the Caribbean, so you can't find ports of calls there. But its big claim to fame is their effort to make it the most luxurious ship ever built, which I thought was interesting because I think for the past few years we've seen the superlative of note has been the largest ship ever built, mm -hmm. which is obviously a much easier claim to substantiate than most luxurious. But Regent has really gone all out in a way that I think we don't see many places anymore, be it hotels or in the cruise industry, which is sort of an unreconstructed, super luxe, luxuriousness of a kind of old world palace kind of way. You what know, was, the, it, what was the best thing? What was your favorite thing? What single thing summed that up for you? I'm very jealous. I wish I think that sounds amazing. I think it's stepping onto the ship onto gold leaf marble marquetry and then having someone say, oh, you know, there's an acre of marble, most of it from Carrara used on the ship. And that's okay. nice. That's nice. I mean, <laughs> but well, what's the hotel equivalent? Like, what's the hotel equivalent to that particular ship? I think it's probably something in the Middle East right now, um, which is interesting because that's not who their target audience is at all. It's more like, a, I mean, maybe it's something like Wynn in Vegas or mm -hmm. Bellagio, something in that in that place. Right. And then the, the other thing, and I referenced it before, was they have one of these Culinary Institute of America culinary schools on board and incredible food, and having the interface of those two things together feels special. My advice for anyone who is mulling a Mediterranean cruise for the first time is really simple. Greek islands, Greek islands, Greek islands. Really? Because the not Greek- Not Barcelona, not any of the Italian cities. Because the Gre if, if you want your first experience on a cruise, the Greek islands are Island hopping in Greece is time consuming. Europeans get more vacation so they can go island hopping. On American vacation schedules, to see the Greek islands, it's very difficult other than on a cruise. So you're doing something that a cruise can only afford you. You're also going to get a classic Mediterranean cruise experience. And you will see diversity of culture because of the different archipelagos that the Dodecanese versus, you know, you're going to see the difference between the islands. And I think it's a great primer. Whereas when you go into, say, Venice mm -hmm. on a cruise in season, the cruise port is quite a way away from town. The city's really busy. It's a little icky. It's hot. The Greek islands everywhere is idyllic somehow. Even in Santorini when I was there with thousands of other people, there was always a place you could find and just hide out. So first Mediterranean cruise, Greek islands, Greek islands, Greek islands. Could you guys talk a little bit about river cruises? Because this is something that we covered a little bit in the August issue. I haven't been on one, but I am so eager 
to go on one. And one of our reporters, Valerie Marino, just got back from doing a Disney-branded cruise down the Danube and had a great experience. I think what I like about it is that I'm a city person. I can spend a day or two out in the country, but for the most part, I love exploring an urban area. So river cruising is great for that. I mean, they hit Salzburg, they hit Vienna, they went to Ljubljana. Like there was a lot of ground that you can cover in a relatively short amount of time. And then just simply because of the space, you're not going to get a giant, giant floating city luxury liner on a river. You must be careful on river cruises, though. There is one note of caution. Because the water on which river cruises rely is less limitless than an ocean-going liner, if the weather has been hiccupy in the preceding few months, especially in Europe, you might find yourselves taken off the cruise, put on a bus, and driven to pick it up somewhere else. Oh, no. Which is totally safe and fine, but does ding the glamour a little bit. So before you book a river cruise, I would do a little bit of Googling and see how many interrupted voyages there have been. Because obviously the cruise liners don't foreground that that happens, because who would? You'll very easily in social media be able to find comments on that and proceed with caution if that is prone to happen on the route, because it really does ding that moment of, I'm sitting cruising through the countryside, oh, whoops, now I'm on a bus. Andrew, how has river cruising evolved from your point of view? In a big way, it's just that it's gotten so much bigger. It's probably the fastest department of growth in the entire industry. Agents report all the time that that's what they're seeing more people asking for. That's what they're that's what they're booking so much more of. You have a company like Crystal, which we've known for its ocean voyages for a long time, getting into the river cruise game this season. They've refitted uh, an older ship and are going to be launching new ones of their own. And I think another big change, which we touched on with the mention of the Disney cruise, is that it's become a little bit more family focused. As, as gray as the industry might be, river cruising is probably the grayest. But with Disney getting into the game, I think we're going to see more sort of family adventure happening there. It's an interesting point that you bring up because I was going to ask also about traveling with kids or cruising with kids, I guess. Is there a way to do that without it feeling like a two-week trip to Disney World or, you know, a circus? Like, is there a way to do that sort of elegantly? I think that cruises possibly are the best way to have a trip like that because they can so easily be the best of both worlds or the best of all worlds. And part of that is the idea of the ship within a ship. And a big reason that's successful is because so much cruise patronage is multi-generational travel. So you can have the grandparents who are staying in like the Haven area of the Norwegian and they can sit by the pool all day and their kids are at kids camp or teen camp. And I mean, even at the, my 18 year old nephews were just on a ship where they were at the, you know, the all ages nightclub until two in the morning. They had a great time. They had a safe time and their parents didn't need to worry about them in the way that they frankly might've even had to in Orlando at Disney World because it's a contained environment in one highly populated by staff. Right. It is a lot harder to get lost on your way home. There are so many <laughs> things about, I'm glad Andrew mentioned safety, but I do think that's really important. You know, as a woman solo traveler, I never have to worry about how I'm going to get home at the end of the night. I'm not dealing with calling Uber or taxis in strange places where I don't speak the language. I do think that the safety aspect is really important. And I think for families, it's there's something really lovely about the idea that you can have a family breakfast, then mom and dad and the grandparents go off to different pools, your kids 
go to a kids club, see the friends they made yesterday for the morning. Then in the afternoon, you all go and do something together. And then maybe mom and dad and the kids have dinner in one restaurant and the grandparents have dinner in another, or the grandparents take the kids for supper while the parents have a date Or maybe they all night. go to movie night together. There is something very flexible. It's sort of like, it's like a Swiss army knife of vacations where if you go on with a family, you can day by day customize how family focused you want it to be. And one thing that was a great piece of advice that I got was please remember that things are optional. Uh, I think one sort of myth that I had about cruises is that they were sort of these like 24 hour super joiny like sororities on the ocean where there was every minute of your day was accounted for and that you had to be perky all the time. And I don't think that's the case at all. The ship that I was on had, because we were only going to Cuba and it was so focused on one place, there was a book club on board before the ship left. We all got an email sort of info about packing, what to bring with us. And they mentioned that if we were interested in joining the book club, here was the novel about Cuba that we'd be reading and to try and get it before the trip. And it gave me this great way to get to know other people on the ship, and we had a mutual interest. I was kind of intimidated by the idea of going to a buffet and asking to get seated with new people every night and not knowing how I would get along with them. And this provided something that we had in common and that we could talk about, and it was a lot more interesting, and I ended up staying in touch with the people from the book club who I met. That's a great one. Okay, so where do you want to cruise next, or what cruise do you want to take next? Personally, Andrew. I want to go to the South Pole. Ah, and how would you do that? What is that like? I'm trying to decide if I will wait for this company, Panat, to launch their new ships, which will be 2018, or if I'm going to go with someone sooner, which would possibly be the company Quark or Aurora. Okay, great. I'm going to go with Andrew to the South Pole on the Panam, totally, 100%. I would also, cliche as it sounds. Do you go every year, Mark? Do you do, no, do no, I, I, no, um, I normally end up doing at least one cruise a year, uh-huh. somehow, often for work. Yeah, sure. But I think I end up doing it because I volunteer, because I love it. <laughs> um, I would also, cliche as it sounds, the Galapagos is somewhere that a cruise can get you to very easily and very... What kind of lines? What kind of ships? They're oh, don't steal mine! I was going to say Galapagos. So you you explain the lead. So I'll go to I'll go to the South Pole with Andrew on the. I'm totally with you. We will come with you on the same ship. I feel like you're you're playing Clue right now. It's like in the ballroom with Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> But we'll go to the South Pole. You're going to go to the Galapagos. Yeah. Well, Galapagos has been on my bucket list for a while, and I do think the best way, it's a bunch of islands, the best way to go is by boat. So the MV Origin launched its first sailing this year in February. It is a cruise yacht basically there are only 10 staterooms you can fit about 20 25 people depending if they wow, have kids or not cool yeah and it's it's just it sounded like exactly the way that i wanted to go it's a little smaller you get to know people there's more access there's a naturalist on board it's very customizable very personal um yeah that's what i'd really like to do i want to ask you a question brad yeah have we convinced you to go you on actually cruise? have yeah and especially when I, when I hear things like oh there's book club i, I mean i think that for me you've made me want to go so that's great I'm also intrigued by the smaller boat idea and being able to go to destinations because for me, I think I, I like the idea of being able to spend a couple of days on the seas, but I think it would get old pretty fast. 
So the idea of going to destinations is really cool. And it's great to know that the smaller ships are the better way to do that. So that's really helpful. And then also this idea of family travel. I do have a kid. I did just go on a family vacation. I think there are probably more of those in my future. So knowing that there's a way to turn that into an advantage is really kind of great. And that that's a great idea for me. Is anybody going to do this Mekong River Cruise? Any of you guys intrigued by that? I am. I'd really like to do it. Yeah, that sounded pretty great to me. Well, we, I think we should have a podcast after you've been on your first cruise. <laughs> Depends yeah. on you which can, one it is. <laughs> you can confess and say, okay, this is my first time. Here's what I learned firsthand. I think also I'm intrigued by the idea of combining a cruise and some on-land travel. That really appeals to me. Like, I'd love to go to the Galapagos, but I also feel like I'm already in South America. Why not? So once I'm back on land, like, why not do maybe go to Ecuador, maybe go on to Peru, you know, see what else is around while I'm down there. I paid for the flight. Like... Make it part of a bigger experience. Yeah, that's an interesting one too. Andrew, parting thoughts? I think that the key thing is for people to not think about cruising as a separate monolith from any other type of travel they might do. And often it's the best way to get to the best next place they want to go or that people are telling them they should go. And it certainly isn't something to check off your list just because it's floating. Great. Okay, thanks to all of you guys for coming and talking to us, and thanks to everyone who's listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's on iTunes, it's on SoundCloud, and you can visit us, and you should visit us, and read all about cruising at cntraveler.com. We are also at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube, and CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And I would say, please tweet at us. We would love to get the feedback. We have been getting feedback. In fact, I got some follow-up on some feedback that I got to do since I've been out of town. And we would love if you would review us on iTunes so that we can know what we're doing and what you want us to do. Let's go around and tell the folk how to get in touch with you, Lilith. Uh, so I am on Twitter at Lilit Marcus, L-I-L-I-T-M-A-R-C-U-S. And I am on Instagram at Lilith Goes. And I'm on Twitter. And thank you to Eric Scalavino, who's one of the most responsive listeners we have. And I love getting his feedback. Thank you, Eric. You suggest our cocktails. We didn't have a cocktail this week. And I promise we will follow up on those. You can reach me like he did at, on Twitter at Mark with a K, J, Elwood with two L's. Andrew. And I am on Twitter and Instagram as Sessa Says What. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> And Eric is somebody I need to get back to um, since I've been out of town. And so, Eric, I will do that. I am Matt Bradrick, and that's it for us this week. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye.